Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. From the Webby Awards, I'm David Michelle Davies. This is the Webby Podcast. All these robots are yours. Keep looking at the stars. Might want to buckle up, baby. Act now or face disaster. Hey there, and welcome back to the Webby Podcast. My next guest needs little introduction. Adam Savage is synonymous with making, creativity, and one of the most important science shows of the last decade, Mythbusters. Mythbusters led the resurgence of the maker movement of the early 2000s, using science and experiments to debunk popular legends and myths. And with the rise of the internet, as you can imagine, came the rise of misinformation and even more myths to bust. Today, it's popular to be a maker, but back then it was an anomaly. Adam and his Mythbusters co-host, Jamie, carved a space, both on-screen and online, for makers of all ages to find a community of like-minded folks all over the world who shared their passion. Adam has a new book out, Every Tool's a Hammer, which is every bit as great as its title. We dive into the book, how he became Adam Savage, working on builds for Star Wars and the legacy of Mythbusters, as well as how he hopes his new book will give readers a permission slip to explore the most creative aspect of themselves. Your name is like synonymous with all these... With what two random dudes might do on a Sunday in their garage with a lot of free time. Well, like very cool dudes <laughs> with a lot more firepower than most random dudes in their garage, but fair enough. Well, so, so the only difference, I often said that the only difference between Jamie and I and a couple of 14-year-old pyromaniacs is that we always call the police first. Ah, that's, there you go. You're planned yeah, to like do they appreciate the advance notice. <laughs> how did you, how did you become that? Or really more like, how did you get into that at the beginning? Like, when did you really feel like, you know, you started discovering like making and creating things and experimenting and all that stuff. Well, so I want to state terms for first and foremost, that making is simply the newest term for the oldest human endeavor of, of creativity. Really. Um, I grew up in a creative household. My father was a painter and a filmmaker. My mother is a psychotherapist. Um, so my dad rebuilt the deck, uh, behind our house in sleepy hollow, uh, three different times, never to code, but each one was a little better than the predecessor. So I grew up seeing the example of someone who modified their world to fit them. He built a lot of the stuff and equipment in his studio. He actually built the studio in which he painted in throughout my childhood. So I had that direct example that such a thing was possible. And I was always encouraged to play with materials and use cardboard and acetate and masking tape, some of my first maker tools that I found in my dad's studio to make my own things, whether it was buildings for a train set or a James Bond briefcase with secret equipment in it. Uh, I even dragged home a refrigerator box when I was 10 years old and made a spaceship cockpit out of it in my parents' guest bedroom. Okay. So definitely like a, a strong role model there. Absolutely. Yeah. From the, and from the earliest age, that was really, that was encouraged. And more than that, 
because of the friends that my parents had, and they were, they're definitely part of a, they were part of the entertaining set. My mm-hmm. parents had a dinner party probably once a week throughout my whole childhood, a level of socializing, which exhausts me just to think about at this point in my life. Um, but I grew up around a lot of artists making weird stuff and being unabashed about it. Okay. Um, and you said Sleepy Hollow, for those who don't know, is... Yeah, Sleepy Hollow is about 25 miles north here of Manhattan. And uh, I was born uh, here in Manhattan, spent the first few years of my life in the West Village. And then in the early 70s, my parents moved up north. Okay. Interesting. Um, and then, you know, I was always I was always very active in art school, in art class in school. I loved shop class back then in the 70s and 80s. There was still a shop class. Uh, and then in high school, I found a wonderful teacher mentor in, a, in an art teacher named Mr. Benton, um, who not only let me try everything there was in his space, you know, what is that? Oh, it's a vacuum former. How does it work? Well, let's break it out and try. Uh, but also let me explore farther than the equipment they had in the shop and let me try all sorts of different flights of fancy. And that kind of encouragement was really integral to the fact that I ended up making stuff with my hands for 20 years before Mythbusters showed up. And, you know, I know before you did Mythbusters, which is sort of like, two, started as like 2002, 2003, something like big exactly. beginning of yep. the aughts or whatever we're calling them these days. Um, I know you were in productions, like special effects and sets and all that kind of stuff, right? Well, I got my start in, th- I got my start in theater okay. uh, in the early 90s. That was the first time I felt like I had kind of stumbled into a genuine career as opposed to a job. And I was working as a carpenter, as a scenic painter, rigger, all, every job there is in theater, I, I held it at one point and eventually got a reputation for a certain type of problem solving, mechanical prop-based problem solving. And that got the attention of Jamie Heineman, my co-host on Mythbusters. And at the time, in the early 90s, he was running a small effects shop for a company called Colossal Pictures. And he, he brought me in and I ended up working for Jamie for about four, four or five years as a, as a modeler on well over a hundred commercials. Oh, wow. And then uh, I went off and spent a year as the director of R&D for a small startup toy company and realized that I was not born to be management of that kind. I needed to be making stuff. And I, I eventually managed to land up at Industrial Light and Magic, George Lucas's famous special effects shop. And uh, I spent about five years there until Mythbusters showed up. And what was that like? Where was, where was ILM in the oh. world of Star Wars when you were there? It was amazing. I mean... My life story can look uh, somewhat linear if you just take it on its facts that I was 10 years old when Star Wars came out. I was in the sweet spot culturally for it to change my life, and it did. And then I read that people did that for a living, and I couldn't believe it. I decided I wanted to do that. And then I tried a bunch of different times to work in special effects, and it never took. And then when I finally did get hired at ILM in 1998... I was fully qualified for the job, something I wasn't at any other point at which I tried to get into special what effects. Do, like, what do most people who work at ILM or a place like that, how do they get to that place? It's the same kind of thing in theater and stuff like that ahead of time? It right? is it's from every, it is so life. different, everybody. I mean, my, you know, my friend Trevor Tuttle dressed up as a UPS guy and handed his resume directly to the head of the model shop in order to get his interview. My friend Dave just sent in a resume and they called him, which almost never happens. A lot of the original model makers came from University of Long Beach in the industrial design department. Um, so it is a weird mix of engineers and artisans. I think what typifies a, a high level model maker is a very rounded set of skills. 
Uh, at one point, I was talking to a recruiter at IDEO, and they said they like to look for what they called mushroom-shaped people, people with a solid foundation, uh, what they considered the stock, and then a wide-ranging group of interests, which huh. they considered the crown. And Interesting. That definitely describes me. I, I, I want to know a little bit about everything. I, I love understanding the big picture. And what kind of, uh, what were, the, were you, you must have been working on? 98, I'm just trying to date myself into Star Wars. I feel like we're in like- It was the very tail end of production on episode one. Okay, I was gonna so say- Back when we thought back, it might right? still be good. <laughs> and uh, it was a fat time to show up at, it's one of the reasons I got hired is because they had hired everyone in the Bay Area and they hadn't gotten to me yet. There was right. 200 people working full time in the model shop. And it was all hands on deck. I got to build a spaceship with a wonderful old time model maker there named Larry Tan, who took me under his wing and showed me the ropes. I made many friends I still have today in those first few what's, months. And what's like, what sizes were the models of the spaceships? Uh, are we talking about like, because I, I, I heard stories, I haven't read about this in a long time, so you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but mm -hmm. I, I do kind of remember reading about like the very, very early Star Wars is that there's scenes that are shot like with very, very small, small models, which I assume is, at this point they're not, they're not they were doing it, then. It depends upon the shot. Yeah. Oh. Sometimes you might have a model that's surpassingly small because of the needs of, of the shot, and sometimes it might be incredibly large. Uh, for episode one, we did a lot of things called set extensions, where the actors would shoot within a confined space, uh, but the, the sets would end just above their heads, and then we would build miniature sets that would match that, and they would digitally composite them together. So mm -hmm. we'd build everything above the heads of the actors. And the first spaceship I worked on was Newt and Rune's shuttle that lands on Naboo. It's sort of this spider-legged, weird tricorn wedged-shaped ship. And because it was uh, a fat time, because there were so many people working, I got to work with Larry on the detailing of that ship. Then they gave me the job of painting it from scratch, which was phenomenal. So much fun. Then I also did the electronics and wiring of the lighting of it and then took it onto set and rigged it for the set because they had this large miniature of the public square on Naboo uh, as a set extension. And the ship was part of that. Wow. How, how big, so how big? Of, uh, uh, I'd say the ship was about probably two, two and a half feet long and about two feet high. It was a really lovely scale to work in. You must have just been like absolutely pinching yourself the whole time you're working there because I, I, I'm just absolutely their whole life probably excited about Star Wars and then yeah. you're actually at the and then to show up and realize at no other time in my life was I qualified to do this until right now and mm. now here I am yeah. and that was delirious and then you know in model making you're always having to come up with solutions for stuff that is weird and hasn't ever come up before and will never come up again but when you engineer a cool solution at ILM like my friend Lauren Peterson would walk by my desk and he'd be like, oh, what are you doing? That's really cool. And you'd show him and he'd go, oh, you know, on Empire, we, and then he'd tell you some story about Empire Strikes Back. You can't believe you're hearing this story from the horse's mouth. But after that, he'd go away and tell other people about it and people would parade past your desk to see the new technique you were working on. Uh. And this was universal. If someone was doing something cool, everyone eventually made it by to see what they were doing and kind of absorb it. Right. So there was a lot of sharing. There's no slack at ILM at that point. So it's like a analog version of that. Exactly. Thing, right? Exactly. The word of mouth slack. Yeah. Um, okay. And last question on the Star Wars thing. Mm -hmm. I, could, I could ask you a thousand of these, but we should talk about this stuff. But you must have ended up with like cool Star Wars stuff. I would um, imagine. Not that you're not supposed to. Okay. Well, but little small things walk out of the uh -huh. model shop. It's yeah. true. So I have a shelf full of things I, I worked on or, or built when I was at ILM. And a lot of them are the things that were off to the corner of my workbench. For instance, when you're, when you're detailing a ship, we call it kit bashing because 
you do the basic shape of the ship and then you go and grab a bunch of model kits and you clip little detail parts off of them to add detail and scale to the surface of your model. And when you do that, sometimes you end up with a lot of one thing. For instance, when you're carving up uh, 172nd scale military kits, you end up with a lot of 172nd scale humans who are mm. about an inch tall. And I ended up with a cup full of them. So I glued them all to a, a, a sort of a pilaster from episode two that there were castings everywhere. And I still have this little sort of talismanic object. And it would be like you'd be gluing up hundreds of parts and you'd end up with a figure. And you're like, oh, I'll glue this figure over here. And it, it's just like you did this as the kind of uh, the breath between the breath between model making. And I still have all of those artifacts from my desk. Fascinating. And do you see, like, when you watch the episodes, you still see little bits and pieces of your, I mean, obviously. You Absolutely. Still, you still remember and still. Yeah. Catch, like, the little... um, and there's even when you're most of model making, like most jobs is tedious. And you, if you're good at the tedium, you occasionally get the chance to do things that are really fun. Uh, and uh, among the, the tedious things I did on that, we're doing all this exterior detailing on the underside of a ship. No one was ever going to see it, but you needed this, this break in the texture. So I ended up giving the underside of Newton Rune's shuttle this sort of dancing bear aesthetic. And I, I did this sort of very sort of graphical dancing bear, which you would never notice unless you were looking directly at the underside of the ship. Right. What's funny is that when Galoob Toys released a toy of Newton Rune's shuttle, it's the there. bear is still they, visible. Like they, they stop the image and they yeah, it's the no way you can hold up the toy and see right. my little bear that I designed. Right, and that's awesome. Then you like went from there to the front. I mean, in front of the camera, which is a huge switch. It I'm was sure a you, switch, yeah. but not as much of a switch as you would think. I had started out here in New York. I went to I went to high school at Sleepy Hollow High School, and then I came into uh, Manhattan to attend Tisch School for the Arts. Sure, I didn't last very long. I didn't know what I really wanted to do, and I wasn't deeply committed and that made me a terrible student. So I spent six months studying acting, uh, in 1985, 86. And then I dropped out to do assistant animation and graphic design and a bunch of other stuff. But I had been working in special effects in the Bay area for about 15 years, uh, in 2002 when Jamie Heineman, who was still a professional colleague, someone I would check in with from time to time, because when you're freelance, you don't burn any bridges. And he called me up in the spring of 2002 and said, I just got this call from the Discovery Channel about uh, this show called Mythbusters. They need someone with a shop. And I, I don't feel like I could host a show on my own, but maybe we could make a demo reel together. And so we did. And this turned out to be this perfect mix-up, match-up between the performer in me that had been in all the high school plays and had studied acting and felt really serious. I mean, I, I love the interaction that happens when you're standing in front of an audience telling a story that that performer met the the maker of things who'd been making a living building stuff with his hands for 15 years. Uh, and Mythbusters turned out to be this sort of perfect storm of, of both of those at once. So the thing I want to, as we, as you tell me about this, the thing I want to sort of keep track of is sort of like late nineties in the Bay area. Mm -hmm. There was like this resurgence of um, people sort of taking control of technology and thinking about like how they could use technology in new ways. And, putting the tools, even the graphic design closer into the hands of regular people and it's people totally, starting yeah. to, and so this is beginning and it feels like that this beginning with the internet really also, it's kind of like it starts to follow the beginning of, of Mythbusters. Well, it, 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 it certainly, the, the two timelines yeah. overlap. What was um, the influence? Like, were you paying attention to the internet then? Oh, I was deeply paying attention. Yeah. I was an early adopter of computers. I've had a laptop since 1992 
the the internet was fascinating and I was really curious. I wasn't sure what it was good for, but I knew it was going to be really important. Uh, and then as Mythbusters uh, aired and became a hit and became ascendant in the early aughts, it turned out to be commensurate with this expansion of what we now recognize as the maker community. And it yielded some really interesting things. For instance, uh, and I heard this from an engineering professor at MIT. He said in the 90s, with the advent of computers and the ubiquity of them, by the end of the 90s, he said, you could, in many American colleges, graduate with a degree in engineering without ever having built a thing. Right. Everything was simulated in computer. CSR, yeah. And this wasn't necessarily turning out the best engineers because there's a vast gulf between empirically gained knowledge and knowledge you just read about. And the maker community and Mythbusters um, were part of a movement away from that and back towards the physical, the physical building of things. But the Moore's law and the the decreasing size of computers and the decreasing cost meant that by the mid aughts, by two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine, you could buy a computer the size of a business card for twenty dollars, and it right. was a fully operational thing. Right. And all of a sudden, now you had ten year old girls programming feedback loop robots that with incredible precision. Yeah. That was really exciting. Again, to be, I I don't suffer any illusions that MythBusters was cause of that, but we were part of that movement, and it was really lovely to watch that happen. And I think the thing that from from afar it seemed like you guys were part of and also drove though, and I think you talk about it in your book that we'll talk about in a second. It's like the people who are into making or creating or being in woodshop or whatever that stuff have always existed. Yeah. Um, it's the newest name for the oldest yeah, endeavor. But yeah. they sometimes didn't have the other people that they could find or chat with or talk to or be part of a community. And uh, maybe they found the other guy and girl or woodshop or whatever, but it yeah. was a limited amount of people. And what you all did and sort of what the internet I think helped you do is really like form this much bigger community yeah. around this thing. And like all the, all the people who were like now considered makers or whatever, but just like were dorks into making stuff. And I mean, dorks in the yeah, highest, no, I take highest, it as a compliment. Yeah, highest compliment. Um, they found each other and you, you, I mean, you all really like were a big part of that community and a big part of how they found each other, I think. Well, I have two responses to, to this. One, I say this in the book that I don't think it's ever been a better time to find your peer group if your hobbies are weird. Yeah. It, it's, they're out there and they want to exult with you and help you do your thing. Um, I also think that what we were showing on Mythbusters, and this grew simply out of Jamie's and my desire to tell true stories. Uh, most reality television is not that real. Uh, this isn't something that's surprising to many people, but it, it might surprise people to know that a lot of reality television works starts with a script and a table read, and someone writes down everything that's going to happen, and the crew just kind of shoots it almost storyboarded. And on Mythbusters, uh, we were Jamie and I were fast enough at building and iterating that we were able to tell stories that were genuinely honest stories. So if the if the road to the solution seems windy, it's because it was windy for us and mm. we simply covered it as it went. Right. When we would conduct an experiment and have a result we didn't expect, we were able to change the rest of the entire episode to suit the results, not the original idea that we had. Right. And I think that example that we were showing that science is an, a messy, iterative, and ultimately deeply creative process was a really important one. And it's it, it wasn't baked into our ethos at the beginning that really grew out of 
the way in which Jamie and I and Carrie and Grant and Tori and all the other folks who helped us and, and our crew approached the entire show. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And did you feel, I mean, so... Talk to me a little bit about like 2006 or seven. I, I feel like there was this time where then YouTube starts existing. Your show is around before YouTube. It's around after YouTube. YouTube at some point became an important part of the of a way of how people watch some of it or pieces of it, clips of it and all of it and all, all sort of different things. And about how people spread wonderful, crazy amounts of misinformation. Right. YouTube <laughs> and Twitter proved right. ludicrously fertile territories for, for myths. Because you had more myths to, deb- to debunk, oh. essentially. Well, I mean, look, we started out doing urban legends, but I, I'm pretty positive there's not a single scientific paper on urban legends that has ever quoted our work right. because it's not really germane to the field of urban legends. Yeah. Um, more than that, we ran out of quote unquote urban legends probably by the end of season two. And the question was, well, what are, what is the show really about? And now I can say easily testing popular misconceptions, uh, movie physics, and even idiomatic phrases using the scientific method. But as we were going, that none of that was apparent to us. We were just like, okay, what's another testable proposition? Oh, right. uh, that you can't make a concrete airplane. Okay, let's try. Let's right. see how possible that is. Yeah. So then you you could find this stuff also on Twitter and on YouTube. But there's so much more access to being able to find it. Well, and Twitter became a great way that people could let us know that, oh, there's this crazy video showing this guy sliding down a water slide and flying 70 feet through the air into a kiddie pool. <laughs> We're like, oh my gosh, we have to figure out a way to test that. Did you feel like the interaction then, I would imagine the interaction with the people watching it grew. Well, and that again is through the years. That's something I still appreciate about Twitter that is kind. I mean, now social networking platforms are all about quote unquote engagement. For me, I, I mean, I joined Twitter within the first few months of Twitter. There's only, you know, I don't know, a few thousand people on it. And for me, it was a way to talk to the fans in this direct way that because they, there was actually almost a politeness about the conversation. There still is in general. Now, a good portion of that is because I'm a white man. I don't endure any, any way near the amount of abuse that my friends who are women and people of color do on, on social networks. And that's one of those weird privileges I'm given. But to go back to the beginning of Twitter and talk about the, like for me, that ability to talk directly to fans of the show and see their enthusiasm and, and see that direct feedback, which was much more, conversational feedback than just the, the, the echo chamber that is the comments section of any YouTube page. Mm, yeah. And which I never read. Like I, I take Chris Hardwick's advice, reading, uh, reading your comments is effectively a form of cutting. Right. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
And I'm sure they were also telling you when they disagreed with your- Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, right. And, and you I guys made that part of the show at some point. Neither Jamie or I ever had a horse in the race of whether a myth should be proved or disproved. Right. For us, we were totally agnostic about the about what the, what the end result would be. And if somebody radically disagreed with our methodology, not only did we want to know that, not only did we encourage that, we frequently, every season, went back and did an episode where we would retest stuff because we realized we could do a better methodology. Yeah. And so now Mythbusters, the show is, has been, what's the nice way to say it? Put, put, to out, to put out to pasture. 13 years. We wrapped it's it pretty, up in early 16. Yeah, yeah. It's not bad. You have a, it's Mythbusters Junior now. Mythbusters is, Junior. What's, we shot that last summer. It was, what's so like, what, you're in like a totally different role in this show though. Yeah. What's, what's I'm that more like? like the camp counselor. Yeah. What's that like? Is that, was, it was fascinating. You know, at the beginning of any creative endeavor, I think there's this really important moment to realize you don't know what you're making. And it's important to stay in that space of not knowing. Mythbusters Jr. is a fundamentally different show than Mythbusters, even though they share so much DNA. On Mythbusters, I realized after many years that my job was to be both a storyteller, but also the audience's avatar for experience. You want to know what it's like to go into a U-2 spy plane? I'm going to go up and I'm going to tell you everything I'm going through physically, emotionally, mentally, intellectually. Uh, Mythbusters Jr., I'm much more the camp counselor. I am the, I'm the one helping these six amazing young scientists explore the limits of their ingenuity. That was both off camera and on camera. Mm. Uh, we took it as axiomatic at the beginning of production. Uh, we had to shoot over the summer because all these kids are in school. We took it as axiomatic that if these kids had a great summer and we were filming, we would end up with a good show. Yeah. And we strove and I think succeeded in doing that. I, I consider all six of those kids to be members of my extended family. Yeah. And how, I mean, how did you go about just finding, did you like do tryouts? And No, they out? were found before I was brought in. Oh, wow. Uh, okay. The production company for Mythbusters, Beyond Productions, had done a talent search and they had, this, they had suggestions for the, six, for the six kids and I agreed with every last one of them. Hmm. Which is, a, frankly, a rarity in television that, right. you, <laughs> that everybody looks at something and everyone has the same same uh, impression. And so, you know, to some extent, you had this youth where you had a role model that was encouraging a lot of this type of curiosity and exploration in your in your mm -hmm. dad and your parents. Yeah. Uh, for some amount of time in the summer here, that I imagine some of them have a similar role model at home, but for some amount of time, you were that role model to them. Um, did you see any, like, what's the, did you see anything different about this generation that has access to so much more information and tools about how they went about sort of their curiosity and what they were interested in and in, in solving these, these things? I don't think the, I don't think the tools change the, the exploration of the curiosity. I'm always really careful whenever someone says this generation to, to be reminded of the fact that there is graffiti on the wall in Pompeii complaining about these kids these days. Yeah, of course. <laughs> it is of a course. universal thing. It is really exciting how versatile what, all that being said, it is really exciting how versatile the, the tools that kids can play with for a very low cost of entry. Yeah. And so all of a sudden, like I said, 10-year-old girls are doing Arduino programming and building things for $50 that would have cost $10,000 five years ago. That's really exciting. Uh, because we live in this age where the machines are getting smarter, they're getting smaller, and the things that we can do with them are more finely attuned. And it's really incumbent on us to raise, I think, a generation of digital natives who are comfortable with those technologies. 
it's they're not just novelties. They're they're real ways in which we can substantively change the world around us. Yeah, I mean, I, I the reason I asked the question is, you know, I have two young boys, and one of the things I think about a lot with them is, you know, when I was a kid and I was curious about something, and I'd ask my mom or my dad or whoever teacher, or you know, it's like, oh, well, we can look in the encyclopedia or yeah. we can go to the library, and so, okay, we'll do that. And it, but I mean, this was like a. In the best of cases, it was an entry in the encyclopedia in the right. bookshelf downstairs. In the worst of cases, it was a trip to some place in three to weeks. The library, I mean, yeah. It was not an immediate answer. And now there is an immediate answer, not all the time, but like most of the time. And well, so, now we have to teach our kids to have bullshit detectors. Yeah. <laughs> we have to teach them how to parse right. good and bad information. Yeah. And that can get really, really difficult. But like, what is that? What does that? I'm just excited to see what does that do in the future to people who have had their curiosity, not satisfied, but sort of like watered or, or nurtured by the fact that the information is accessible, you know? Interesting. Like, well, do, I appreciate the questions. premise of your question that there is in fact a future that is, <laughs> that's optimistic. Are, are you like a, uh, the end of time technology dystopia type? I'm terrified. Okay. Of, I, right now is a very scary time. Yeah. And I don't see humans. Too many Black Mirror episodes. Well, I mean, and, I, you know, I agree. I don't know if you've seen the wonderful uh, activist uh, student out of Sweden, Greta Thunberg. She's she's my hero. And yeah. she's entirely right. But yeah. all that being said, that access to information, I'm not sure that I have a distinct point of view about what it means to the future of making, except that... I feel personally that the act of making, and again, making is anything. It is any time you make something from nothing, whether it's a poem or a dress or a table. Um, the act of doing it, the act of exploring yourself to find something that you want to make extant and using your brain and maybe your body, your hands, or your voice to bring that thing into being is an inherently positive moral act. That is an assumption that I'm making. Mm. I could be wrong. Uh, but I like to believe that it is a moral act and that when we do that as human beings and members of our families, our communities, and our cultures, we're contributing with those things that we make. And we're recapitulating our culture through ourselves. And again, those are these are some of the most fundamentally important ways in which human beings ultimately share our understanding of the universe with each other. We, yeah. we tell stories, we tell emotional stories with art, we tell rigorous stories with science, but it's all just narratives. Yeah. I mean, and you talk about this a bit in the book, it's called Every Tool's a Hammer. I'm going to talk about the title in a minute. But one of the things I really like about just especially the beginning is how you talk about how the act of writing the book reminds you of the fact that you start off with an idea of any project that you're going to do. And the the part that matters is how that changes or doesn't meet or meets or exceeds or whatever it does to what you thought it was yeah. going to be, that that difference is like the whole thing. It's all, Not that it's it the whole reason we do exactly it. what you thought it was going to be. Yeah. Right. And the book itself is, is, was like that for you. It was. So th there's the quote from, from so attributed to Michelangelo. I simply removed all the parts that weren't the sculpture that I wanted. I right. carved away all the marble that wasn't the sculpture that I wanted. And actually Michelangelo's own career belies that. There, I think we have, I think it's a PA top, but I can't quite remember. There's a sculpt of his we have that's half complete. And in the half complete sculpture, you can see two, at least two different positions for the arm of the main figure. He was experimenting mm. with the, the positioning. So uh, the idea of the artist as someone who conceives of something and then makes it is a total fallacy. 
what happens is you conceive of something and by conceive of something, I think we mean he came up, the artist, they came up with a problem to solve. And in the execution of solving that problem, they ended up way far away from what they originally thought was going to happen. Yeah. And I, that's a really important tension to teach kids about making that no plan survives first contact within, with implementation. It is an iterative process and they aren't failures that you encounter along the way. They're simply wrong turns or branches that weren't productive towards the end result. Yeah. How did that, tell me about how that was for you with, with the book. Like what did oh, you man. start off imagining it to be? In, in I started off imagining it would be a far more of a how-to book with lots of shop tips. Oh, okay. And then that within that, I would sort of bury uh, MFK Fisher style, some secrets to life. Mm-hmm. Right? I just, I th- this was the con- original conceit. And the first chapter I wrote was called Use More Cooling Fluid. And that's a joke I used to say when people would ask me, if you could use a time machine and tell your young self one thing, what would it be? And I would say, use more cooling fluid. And that's funny and not expected. Uh, And part of it is because I've destroyed a lot of things by not taking the time to go get some cooling fluid or use my tools in the correct way. I've tried to be fast about it and I haven't addressed my work correctly. And so in that chapter, I begin by talking about the physics of cooling fluid, what it's actually doing for you, extending the life of your tools, making your work more precise. But then I go to the the meta frame of taking that time and what that means into the working process. I'm about to drill this hole. Let me set this on a bench. Let me go get the stuff I need to do this right. Let me make sure this drill bit is, you know, all of the things that we do to properly mentally address our work in its own space rather than rushing, rushing through. Yeah. But that turns out to be one of the only chapters that actually has that structure. Right. I realized as I was as I was putting these quote unquote shop tips together that because I'm a skill collector and I'm very mediocre at most of the things I know how to do, I didn't feel like I could be an authority on most of this stuff. Um, it is so like in my chapter on glue, which is the most uh, uh, descriptive chapter in the book where I talk about the glues that I use in my shop. I start the whole chapter by going, you may disagree with all of this and you're also right. Right. It's what works for you. But I'm telling you in my shop, these are the seven or eight types of glues that I use and why I use them and why they're useful to me. And your results may vary. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. I think that when I picked it up, I assumed that it would be the opposite and was surprised to find like a chapter about all the different glues. (laughs) Um, Tell me about the title a little bit. Every tool is a hammer. Yeah, Every Tool's a Hammer was a joke that was told frequently by a model maker I used to work with, the late, great Mark Buck. Mark Buck was a six and a half foot tall, lanky, acerbic, both quiet and loud somehow, motorcycle rider and a master model maker. And occasionally he would say in the sage-like tone, remember, in every tool, there is a hammer. And what he means from a maker's perspective is there's nothing you can't misuse in, in the pinch. Huh. When you need something, there's, you know, right. if you need a hole in the wall, maybe the heel of your shoe will do if nothing right. else will suffice. But I also think that it, the joke carries with it this lovely bit of grace about the fact that when you learn to use tools, there comes a point at which you start to see their possibilities way beyond their original function. Mm. And that scope... That perspective is a lovely perspective, and it's part of every maker's uh, self-education, I think. One thing I was also really struck by was sort of at the beginning, you talk about your love of cosplay. Mm -hmm. And it's it's almost like a confession. Yeah. Not really, but almost. And 
he's also talking about how you feel like you're to some extent, like someone who's going around and giving people permission slips Yep. that you're like, Hey, do it. You can, you can, you can try this. It's okay. Can you well, talk about that a little bit? Cause I think it does, it does fit into the sort of overall theme that I think comes through in the book, even through the chapters of, you know, using the right coolant and the different type of glues. Well, I think a lot of people, I, I, I get a lot of people come up to me and say that uh, they found Mythbusters inspiring and they, they started making stuff. I also get a lot of people talking about how they, they wish they could do something creative. They just haven't, they haven't found the right workbench. They haven't gotten the right thing uh, or their hobbies weird. Now, I'm the first to admit my hobbies of making props and costumes and wearing them and using them is a weird hobby. I'm not actively contributing to the betterment of humanity necessarily by doing these things in my shop, but exploring those has been an endless process of self-discovery. And that makes me a better person. It makes me a better man, friend, husband, citizen, what have you. And for me, when we follow those obsessions that we can't stop thinking about, like I said, they teach us about ourselves. They, they give us introspection. And then when we want to do them well, if you want to do anything well, you have to confront yourself. You have to confront your own biases, your own proclivities, your own uh, ideas about what you thought the project should be. And I mean, every one of us has had the experience of trying to figure out why isn't this project working? And then you realize it's because your root assumptions from the very beginning were wrong mm. and you have to change those. Effectively, you have to replace the foundation of the building you've been building. And that's part of every creative endeavor. Um, and so the, the place where many people start to connect with their weird secret thrills, what they think of as their weird hobbies is in adolescence. So at 11, 12, 13, you start to realize like, I love monster trucks or I love Star Wars or I love Yu-Gi-Oh cards. And while you may find that you share that with your best friend, you may also find that your other peers in school can be surpassingly cruel because the things that make us passionate also make us vulnerable. Yeah. Again, because you're confronting yourself, well, that thing that I'm confronting myself with, it makes the inside of me apparent to other people watching. And when I put on a costume and I'm enjoying it, you can see it. You, and I am exposed a little bit. And that, again, that's a vulnerability. And again, middle school is where a lot of people learn to subsume those desires because they have been punished for them by their peers. All that being said, I think it's never been a better time, as I say in the book, to be a maker because you could find your group, you could find your sangha, you could find a peer group that will support you. And this book is my permission slip for people to follow that thing. Because while it may not seem like it's germane, you know, it may not seem that taking up still life oil painting is going to help you in your job as an accountant, I would submit that it in every way will help you. Because you're going to be going through a, a process of self-exploration and a process of investigating how to be excellent at something. And that is analogous to everything else that you will do. I think it's a great place to wrap up. Adam Savage, thanks so much for joining us on the Webby Podcast. This was so much fun. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thanks so much to Adam for stopping by the studio. And a larger thank you to Adam Savage and Jamie Heineman for their incredible contribution to science with Mythbusters. Keep up with Adam at Don't Try This on Twitter, and be sure to pick up a copy of his new book, Every Tool's a Hammer. Thanks for listening, and if you enjoyed this episode, please share it and take a few seconds to leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about the Webby Awards, visit webbyawards.com. As always, you can reach me on social at DMDLikes. 
Our producer is Terrence Brosnan. Our writer is Jordana Jarrett. Our editorial director is Nicole Ferraro. Music is Poddington Bear. Claire Graves is the friend who always writes thank you notes. I'm your host, David Michelle Davies, and this is the Webby Podcast. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.